0: the following podcast is equivalent to a tvma rating thanks to the author's strong and frequent use of adult language and graphic recollection of her sexual escapades we strongly advise listening alone or with an extremely open-minded politically incorrect companion such as a gay bestie Welcome to How Bitches Are Made. I am your host, Rachel Melvin. This week's story is a little bit different than the traditional format. It is actually very long, (laughs) very serious, and a very poignant story. So I actually thought it would be best to eliminate the distractions of using reenactments and sound effects so that you guys can focus a little bit better and more on the details because, as you'll hear... They are very important. (laughs) So, let's get started. Here is this week's story. The following is a true story, as sad as that is for me to admit. Names have been changed for obvious reasons. Chapter 18, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, that's how bitches are made. I've been dying to write this one for years. Yes, years. I suppose, even really decades, if I'm being honest. Since the very first time I met her, which was a red flag from the start. Lorena Schulman was introduced to me by an ex. An ex you might remember as Double D. He was my first true heartbreak. And even an ex as seemingly as innocent and kind-natured as this one, he continued to craft ways to subtly insult me. He pondered her off on me, citing he thought we'd get along because she was, quote, as crazy as I was, end quote. And though our friendship would have its ups and downs enough to reveal what a loaded statement that actually was, it wasn't until a couple years ago when I'd discover just how crazy crazy was. In the beginning, I had my reservations. For starters, because I recognized a familiar triangle forming that was all too reminiscent of my high school days— a triangle where two girls pining for the same egotistical ass were pitted against each other. My mom had done her duty in raising me enough to know better, which often meant I was the girl bearing the brunt of the envy pointed in her direction, and I'd lost enough friends over situations like these to know they weren't much of a friend to begin with, which is how I initially viewed Lorena. She was loud, pushy, opinionated, domineering, and had a territorial nature when it came to my ex, as if she either didn't know I'd already dated him or that he had told her all about me. Either way, that energy, coupled with her shameless, exaggerated flirtations he just gobbled right up, were enough to turn me off of them both. But once Double D began outwardly rejecting her, Lorena was suddenly very eager to show me her softer side and bond over his douchebaggery. I suppose I was empathetic toward her and relieved to finally have someone else to commiserate with. After all, he hadn't been in LA long enough for anyone else to see through his act, and talking about it with others who didn't intimately know him only left me looking like a bitter, obsessive ex instead of someone searching for the validation she really needed. Though my guard was still up, it slowly came down with every similarity Lorena and I discovered we'd shared. We had the same kind of job as teenagers, grew up in the same region, held childhood resentment towards sports, drove convertibles, and had moved to L.A. by ourselves at the age of 18. In fact, we had so much in common that I actually did begin to wonder if perhaps Double D really had been earnest in his efforts of setting us up as friends. But then I quickly remembered, he was never that selfless. Once Lorena was fired from the job that merged our paths, they would only intersect intentionally albeit a lot less often, which really reveals something about a friendship. Only at the time, I hadn't yet figured that out. I failed to see that my efforts to hang out were only met by Lorena until she was through whatever trial and tribulation she was facing at the time. Like, for instance, from the minute she was fired until the moment she got a new job. After that, my invitations went either unanswered or declined, and never reciprocated. Unless, of course, she needed something such as an errand ran or relationship advice. You might be wondering why I was still willing to be her friend with that kind of lopsided relationship, especially given my initial misgivings upon meeting her. I suppose I can best explain it by saying that not only was I blinded by a desperation I've had since grade school to find a best friend, I was too insecure with my female friendships in general enough to notice, which ironically is yet another similarity Lorena and I shared— Unfortunately for me, she seemed to have outgrown that before I would. After she was replaced in her second job, Lorena seemed eager to be friends again. She told me about an all-girls group she wanted to form to create comedic, female-driven web content, before doing so was a thing, let alone the norm. Together, along with our friend Shannon, we'd invited over 20 people to her apartment to hear our pitch. In the end, though, it was only me and Shannon who were willing to climb aboard. Shannon, you may recall, is the other girl from my almond allergy incident. Anyway, my friends in attendance had told me after. They felt Lorena came off too intense and controlling to want to work with, let alone four, especially on a day-to-day basis. Rather than hurt her feelings, though, I gently informed Lorena they would be passing on the opportunity due to a lack of room in their work schedules. She immediately called me out on the lie. Instead, speaking on behalf of people she didn't know who knew me, blaming their disinterest on my using politically incorrect humor and harsh language during the pitch, which she said made them uncomfortable. Odd, seeing how comfortable those same people are today, being my friends now still. Despite the massive blow-up that ensued, though, the three of us wrote and produced material together that hardly anyone ever saw, because of an incident where Shannon forgot to charge the camera batteries the night before our shoot. Lorena got so mad, she decided we would no longer work as a team, rather independently, only coming together when we needed to shoot and posing as the face of the troupe. In hatching this plan, she hoped Shannon and I would see we needed her—clearly the only person capable of doing anything right—and then she'd be able to call the shots without any dispute. Only, her plan backfired when our sketches performed better than hers and, as punishment, she shut the whole thing down— pulling everything off of YouTube and deleting the files. After we'd parted ways a few short weeks later, Shannon and I both asked for our original materials back that had been stored on Lorena's hard drive. Something we'll circle back to. She told us the files had been mysteriously damaged, and thus, we would never receive them. Over the next couple of years, Lorena and I would weave in and out of each other's lives enough for me to realize she wasn't an average, everyday friend, or even an acquaintance. She was the kind of friend you had to categorize. Now, she wasn't the girl you called for a fun night out. She had an intolerance to liquor and didn't like to go dancing. And she wasn't the girl you traveled with. She couldn't tan and hated being outdoors. Nor was Lorena the girl you called upon to be sympathetic or nurturing when you were suffering. She was usually too fragile from her own drama to focus on anyone else's. And she wasn't the girl who would drop everything to run and help you in a time of crisis, either. She was too busy, and you were always blowing things out of proportion. No, she was the kind of girl you occasionally got creative with if and when she was on an upswing. And I have to admit, when she was, those were some pretty fucking fun times. I'd take photos of her for her album art, and in return, she'd take photos of me to use for acting. I'd help her with song lyrics, and she, well, more accurately, her husband, would help me with punch passes and give me notes on the scripts I'd written. I'd upcycle pieces of furniture she needed for design clients she couldn't find elsewhere, while she introduced me to places where I could build my own website and design my own business cards. I supplied background vocals for albums she was affiliated with, ran errands with and for her, lent her backdrops I had in storage for photo shoots, while she... God, you know, I'm trying to appease my labor Moon by going back and forth here to balance the scales, but the truth is, our relationship was never equal. And I finally took notice of that very truth around the time of her divorce. I was in the upstairs rec room of my parents' house, laying on my stomach, itchy from the fibers of the carpet, when I came up with the concept for how bitches are made. I'd scribbled out a web diagram like I was back in grade school, fleshing out characters, brainstorming story points, and constructing pitch decks for a show I vowed to one day create. Six years, a strong resume, and several set experiences and drafts later, I'd come up with a script to shoot for a sizzle reel and was finally ready to bring it to fruition— I made props, scouted locations, and enlisted a few of my friends to donate both their time and talents, while others offered up their vehicles and venues. Kirk, who I was still seeing at the time, had volunteered to oversee the shoot as the producer he was and had even gotten an editor friend of his to do him a favor on Work and Post. My friend Nicholas supplied his skills and sound equipment, while my friend Mark agreed to operate the camera. I had everything I needed except for the actual camera itself. When I'd asked Lorena if she knew where I might be able to get one similar to the one we'd used in the comedic troupe, she suggested I save my money and simply borrow hers instead. When I questioned whether or not she minded Mark using it, since I was starring in the short, she offered to operate the camera herself, saying she was, quote, already familiar with how it shoots, end quote. And so everything had fallen into place. I had friends donating their time, talents, and resources to help me with this nearly decade-long endeavor, and I could not have been more grateful. Again, because I was starring in The Sizzle myself, I put together a shot list and sent it to Lorena the week before, telling her to email me with any follow-up questions she may have had. The night before the shoot, I sent out all my call sheets and confirmed everyone's participation before going to bed. The next morning, like any shoot day, was a royal nightmare. Kirk woke up sick, Lorena was MIA, and the manager at our venue wasn't sure how to retract the roof enough to let in the natural light we needed to have any light at all. By the time Lorena tumbled onto set, she was a wreck, having stayed up all night fighting with her boyfriend. Wait, boyfriend? I thought she was going through a divorce, Rachel. Why, yes, she was. And despite the fact she was, quote, completely devastated and traumatized, end quote, She had somehow managed to pick up the pieces of her broken heart, at least enough to not only move on with someone new, but have him move in with her to the house she still legally shared with her husband. Anyway, they'd been up all night arguing about a lie she caught him in after stalking his location on her iPhone, something she set up on his iPhone but never shared with him. One argument led to another, which led to zero sleep, which led to her being late, which led to her not eating, which led to her being completely discombobulated. And, in a twist of irony that still tickles me, she'd forgotten to charge the camera batteries. And not only that, their one night of arguing somehow constituted her never having looked at my shot list in the entire week she'd had it. And as if all that weren't already irritating enough, perhaps the most aggravating thing of all was the confrontational attitude she took with literally everyone on set, despite the fact they were all doing me a favor, including the manager at the venue, whom she treated like an idiot. Suffice it to say, I went home that night and cried. I was embarrassed, disappointed, and felt not just betrayed, but sabotaged by someone I should have known better than to have trusted with something so important to me. I knew it was in Lorena's nature to be domineering, but... I somehow discounted the fact she could be that way with something she was so uninvested in. She'd created a negative energy, failed to follow my direction, and disrespected my time, talent, art, and friends. I wasn't sure how to address my frustration with her, but knowing I have one hell of a terrible poker face, I knew I needed to. So later that week, I sat Lorena down and told her I was unhappy with the footage we'd acquired and her ignoring my shot list— Convinced I was overreacting, though, Lorena did her best to make a case for herself by throwing together an edit to prove we had everything we needed. I watched her playback, hopeful but prepared, and was confronted with what I already knew in my gut to be true, especially once Kirk's professional editor tried his best to string together our footage unsuccessfully, and my reps expressed their negative feedback on both outcomes. My worst fears were confirmed it had all been a waste. Refusing to take any accountability, Lorena declared all the professionals I'd enlisted on the project short-sighted, visionless, and moronic. She then portrayed herself as a martyr, pointing out how great of a friend she was for even attempting to squeeze something into her schedule she hadn't the emotional capacity for, considering she had an impending divorce and untrustworthy boyfriend on her hands. I was too stunned by her indignant attitude to remind her that She was the one who volunteered herself to participate in lieu of Mark to begin with. Besides, I guess I was just distracted by my realizing how little she actually showed up for me, even when she did so physically. Which might explain why, by the time the 4th of July rolled around a little more than a year later, I was more than ready to part ways after the trauma scaling argument that had ensued. For those that like to skip around the season, you can hear about that story in episode 13. Anyhow, I was relieved to have Lorena and her stress out of my life once and for all, especially once I distanced myself enough to witness her verbal abusiveness as if it were a comedy album instead of a personal attack on me. The things she was saying were so ridiculous. I couldn't help but see her for who she was. A lost, desperate soul so deep in pain. The only way she thought she could get out was by dragging others down and using them as leverage to help keep her afloat. Suddenly, all the years behind me started to snap into an impressive focus. I could see her patterns of manipulation and victimization from the very start, her narratives repeating themselves in every relationship, every scenario I'd witnessed since I'd known her. The only thing I couldn't understand was what had taken me so long to see what so many others had recognized straight away— Double D, the girls in our pitch meeting, even my dad, who'd only met her once when we all went apartment hunting together after she and I had actually considered being roommates. To this day, he still reiterates how relieved he is that God protects fools and small children, and that I am, more often than not, both of them. Perhaps it was my own pattern repeating itself over and over, playing into her own that made me so blind. Maybe I just believed so strongly that I was capable of helping people recognize the potential I saw in them for themselves. Maybe giving them a chance and offering my patience, forgiveness, and support was all they really needed to live up to who I ultimately saw them becoming. Or maybe it was our similarities that made me too compassionate to walk away from her in her times of need. But now, as if one electric shock too many, I retracted like a roll of measuring tape, knowing the time I'd invested was no longer worth continuing to invest in. I believe that's what they call cutting your losses. If only I'd had a good pair of scissors. But alas, with one last act to go, I'd end up with a sharp enough knife in my back to use to cut the cord for good. I can still remember sitting in the room with my therapist, my body trembling from a level of anxiety so high, it had actually caused my teeth to chatter. She sat across from me, silently reading countless messages Lorena had sent to my iPhone to herself. Not one for subjecting myself to abuse. I had ignored the long paragraphs of anger that had been coming in for weeks. At least until the number inside the red bubble on my home screen was too much for my OCD to handle. When she handed me back my phone, my therapist diplomatically translated the sentiments of Lorena's messages into objective and constructive truths. She's hurt, she said. She cares for you very deeply and misses you very much. Then she concluded, But I don't think this is someone stable enough for you to maintain a healthy relationship with. I must have heard a for now at the end of that last bit, which rationalized my re-entering of the friend zone with Lorena over a year later, after I'd learned she'd been seeing a therapist of her own for close to that same length of time. I suppose it made me feel safe, especially once she revealed her therapist methods were similar to my own, and though I was quick to forgive, I was far less eager to forget. At the time, I was just beginning to reevaluate all my relationships and was quite pragmatic about letting people in who were unfamiliar with the concept of boundaries. My main line of defense was to give everyone a litmus test to both determine the quality of a relationship and shield myself from feeling used— I would approach every situation with cautious optimism, observing nuances and silent language between audible chatter that often distracts us from seeing or hearing things as they are. Only once I was confident I'd be getting back as much as I knew myself to put in, could I relax my defenses. And so, I observed Lorena and took tallies to test the waters before deciding whether or not I wanted to go swimming. She told me her divorce had been finalized, and while she wasn't happy with the settlement, it was more important for it to be behind her. She'd since moved out of the house she shared with her ex that she'd been so attached to and was living in a rented home in a totally different part of the city, a part she'd miraculously come to grow even more fond of. She'd been seeing a musician she was crazy about and working with him on producing an album he'd encouraged her to make. It was different than anything she'd ever done, she told me, and I had to admit, I was at least a little curious. The truth is, I would never really took Lorena seriously as a musician, and perhaps that's because she once said that Taylor Swift stole her career. I remember at the time wondering what planet she lived on to where she actually thought she compared to one of the best storytellers of her time. After all, Lorena and her music were nothing like Taylor. Her lyrics were weak, her voice was mediocre, and her sound was styleless and forgettable especially in an oversaturated sea of female artists. So when she told me she departed from what she'd been doing and landed in a genre that was the complete antithesis, I wondered if maybe it wasn't the key to unlocking her career. Spoiler alert, it wasn't. Her determination to defy all the odds in an incredibly difficult business only put her more at odds with her disapproving parents, which is ultimately how I ended up inviting her to Thanksgiving dinner at my house in the desert later that year. In the months since we'd reconnected, I'd witnessed a consistently relaxed, content, genuinely happier Lorena. She was focused, logical, dependable, and giving. I had wondered how there'd been such a huge shift in a relatively short period before I'd learned that she'd finally went against her whole belief system by going on medication. It was because of that medication I assured my family it was safe to let her inside my home— though they were steadfast in their skepticism, especially after she not only failed to contribute anything, but complained about the air mattress we were both sleeping on to the point where my 60-year-old parents offered up the guest room they'd been sleeping in just to make her quiet, which she happily accepted without hesitation. But that came long after dinner and long after the cart had already been set into motion. The cart I'm referring to is this. In the years since Lorena's absence... I had written a pilot script for How Bitches Are Made, which had gotten me both a literary agent in addition to several general meetings with production companies that more often than not were turning into pitch meetings I was too inexperienced to recognize, let alone nail. Figuring a visual aid would be rather helpful to me, I wrote a brand new sizzle and shot it with my friend Mark at a friend's apartment and had been editing it myself ever since. After we'd finished dinner and doing the dishes— well, everyone but Lorena, that is, I was eager to share what I'd been working on with my parents, and, if I'm being honest, with Lorena, too. I wanted her to see what I'd accomplished entirely on my own, without her interfering or around to fuck it all up. So I played what I'd edited of the six-minute version, explaining afterward what I still intended on doing before it was ready for me to use. I suppose it's worth mentioning here that I was also in the midst of developing this podcast— My reps were reluctant to push me as a show creator without any prior credits, or in the very least, a proof of concept. It was agreed upon that putting together a scripted podcast would be the easiest way to build an audience and prove to networks we had one at all. Trusting their expertise over my ignorance, I put the sizzle on the back burner while I focused on writing the first season. Once Lorena saw the short, it was all she could do to keep herself from salivating all over my keyboard. You have to get this out there! she said. Women need this. Obviously, I knew this, and hers was the kind of reaction I knew I could achieve in making the sizzle to begin with. I'd always felt the concept would land better with a visual translation. Still, developing the podcast was a commitment I'd already made and had people waiting on. Reps always get in the way, she replied to me once I told her of my trajectory. They're too afraid to stick their necks out for clients. Why don't you just let me take it out to a few people in my circle just to test the waters and we'll see what they say? I was reluctant, mostly because I respected my team and the plan that we'd formed together. I didn't want to step on their toes or burn any bridges. Plus, I was cautious of Lorena's inexplicable insistence. After all, I had never known her to be that willingly helpful, especially with this project— Perhaps this was an olive branch to make up for our sordid history? Once Lorena specified it would only go out to her personal friends within the industry, I figured it couldn't hurt to get a little feedback. With my focus on the podcast and Mark too preoccupied with his own other projects to finish the edit, Lorena sent me a list of editors she knew who might be able to take a little off my plate by doing it for me. Of the four people I called, only one ever called me back, and so I interviewed a man named Clint over the phone one afternoon. He seemed to have genuinely understood the story I was telling and the point I was trying to make with the piece. That was important to me, as was the passion he seemed to have toward the project as a whole. After agreeing upon a rate, I sent him my sample cut and raw footage on a hard drive, and he got to work. A few weeks later, I was shocked to receive a cut identical to my own. It seemed as though Clint had simply rebuilt what I'd sent him without putting any kind of spin on it whatsoever. At this point, the holidays were upon us, and by the time he was able to sit back down and implement any of my notes, I was back in the desert, rushing to meet my podcast deadline and get out of my house before the first of my Airbnb guests started to arrive. Oh yeah, and not only was pilot season just around the corner, I still hadn't any place to live in Los Angeles. After all, Kirk had just informed me I couldn't move back into my old apartment, so I was also dealing with that. Suffice it to say... I was beyond stressed out, which is why when Lorena offered to take some of the burden off my shoulders, I was more than willing to let her. She offered to drive to Burbank to meet with Clint in person, where she could sit with him in the bay and relay my notes while making sure he implemented them to my liking. Then, whenever I felt things weren't up to snuff, such as a particular filter for instance, Lorena took it upon herself to edit that section on her own. She sent it back to me for approval, then took it back to Clint to add to the main file. She did it with a few sound effects, too, believing her sound files were better than Clint's and that he wasn't worth the money I had agreed to pay him. When the cut was finally finished, Clint handed Lorena my hard drive with the understanding she'd give it back to me. If I'm being honest, I was moved and incredibly grateful for Lorena's friendship. Not only was she being the kind of friend I'd always wanted her to be, it genuinely felt as though she was both acknowledging and making up for how she'd treated me in the past— And as time went on, she only continued to demonstrate loving acts of kindness. Like, for instance, helping me move into that apartment with the two gay guys. Then helping me move back out of that same apartment a few months later and back into my old place I shared with Kirk to reclaim it. She even offered to Photoshop the podcast's album cover I designed to save money. And though she'd made it clear she wanted absolutely nothing to do with the podcast, what started as her composing a few sound effects for the original mini-sode turned into her editing it as well. It was enough to prove to me that I no longer had to fear being taken advantage of when it came to our friendship. And so, I got in the water, offering my assistance to her as well. I helped her with her artistic endeavors, giving her notes on the music she'd been writing and developing, even giving her an idea and concept for a song that ultimately earned her an award and representation. I searched for homes for sale she wanted to invest in and drove her around the desert to see them, And of course, I offered her many a shoulder to ugly cry on once she and her boyfriend continued to have falling outs. We weren't just getting things accomplished and having a ton of fun in the process. We were actually helping to bring out the best versions of each other. She was so inspired by Habam and the content that I was creating. I actually began to witness her making major life changes of her own. She started to establish and implement boundaries when it came to dating and relationships, for instance, and she began reflecting on the toxicity of certain friendships in her life, inevitably growing confident enough to leave a few behind. She was even able to separate how she saw herself from who she believed her parents wanted her to be. But then, somewhere along the line, things began to take a turn. I had put together a photo shoot for the launch of How Bitches Are Made, enlisting several friends of mine who were brave enough to share their faces and their stories about how they'd once turned being a victim into a victory. Each woman would have two photos. The first, she'd be wearing a blue piece of masking tape over her mouth, blue being the color of patriarchy, with a label of her choice written on top of it. The label was to adequately summarize the crime she felt had been committed against her. In the second photo, that same woman would be seen taking the label off, thus freeing herself from the prison she'd once lived inside. It was directly linked to the podcast's album art, which symbolized a silenced woman finally speaking up for herself and embracing the bitch label society places upon her for doing so. The morning of the shoot, I couldn't help but notice a deflated Lorena milling about her backyard while I took to setting up some lighting equipment in her garage. She'd apparently gotten into another fight with her on-again-off-again boyfriend the night before— I was annoyed when she told me that while she was still willing to man the camera when it came time for pictures of me, she wasn't up for the task of having any photos taken of her. Yet again, another boy problem interfering with my plans. Yet, with six other friends already committed and on their way, I knew I didn't really need her and told her not to worry. For the most part, everyone had left by 1pm, which is when Lorena came out to man the camera for shots of me. Suddenly, as evident by her outfit, hair, and makeup, she was up for having her own photo taken after all as well. That was the day I began to notice the first of many red flags. You see, it wasn't so much as boy problems affecting Lorena's attitude that morning. It was something else entirely. What I'd eventually come to realize was that she hated sharing my time and attention with other people, especially with my friends. She didn't like them, which was apparent from not only how she spoke of them, but from the demeanor she took to whenever they were around. She'd withdraw, sulk, and pout until she either got her way or until everyone left. And it wasn't long before I began noticing other oddities in her behavior as well. Like, why she took such an issue with me working from anywhere other than her house. While her place was more conducive to my productivity than the apartment I shared with the guys and four dogs— There were times I wasn't eager to make the drive over the hill, especially when it was just to keep each other company while working on our individual projects. I didn't see the point in wasting time in traffic and spending so much money on gas every day. And once she and her boyfriend had called it quits for good, those logistics really started to make her unravel. She threatened that unless she had someone around to keep an eye on her, she might, quote, do something stupid, end quote. You might be wondering where her therapist was in all of this. Well, Lorena stopped seeing her the minute that therapist sided with Lorena's boyfriend instead of with Lorena, after they'd recounted an argument they'd had together in their session one day. And while I was under the impression she was in the process of finding someone new, what I didn't know was that she'd also stopped taking her medication. It was the perfect cocktail to bring about an unsurprising result, which was that Lorena eventually lost interest, steam, and confidence in her own endeavors— thus making her more invested in, and dependent upon, mine. While I had honestly believed Lorena was being a real friend to me and trying to help me sell a show, what I eventually came to discover was that it was, and always had been, entirely self-serving. Worried about running out of her settlement money before she'd set up a successful revenue stream, Lorena had hitched her trailer to my wagon and was hoping to, quite literally, bank on my concept to survive. Though she had already reached out to a few close friends of hers with my sizzle, there was an overwhelming urgency she suddenly had in reaching out to anyone and everyone she could. She devoted mornings to sending follow-up emails and cyber-stalking producers she didn't know, to find clever ways to appeal to them. While I had to admit it was somewhat off-putting, I chalked it up to the kind of unconventional approach that you often hear about in success stories— I never did see it for the Hail Mary bore out of desperation that it really was, especially since at times it appeared to be working. Lorena told me there were a few interested parties seeking more material and began pressuring me to produce a pilot script, a treatment, and a pitch deck. She grew more and more resentful of the podcast I'd been prioritizing, not to mention my auditions, Airbnb business, and relationships, to where I eventually decided to just get her off my back— putting everything else on pause so I could churn out all three documents in a little over a week. While I'd been doing that, Lorena had taken it upon herself to design a new website and set up a store with dropshipping in the process. Things I didn't want nor feel were necessary. It wasn't until I began involving my team that things really began to escalate. They wanted to know who we'd been talking to, as well as the feedback we'd been getting from them. And so, we all hopped on a conference call to discuss— To say it did not go well was an understatement. Lorena was vague enough for me to suspect she was acting as her own publicist, which only caused me to doubt just how interested our interested parties were. Once my team cautiously implied a similar perspective, Lorena vapidly disagreed with their opinions, ridiculed their strategies, and insulted them enough to abruptly end the call. Then, she actually told me she thought I should fire my entire team. Or in the very least withhold any commissions from them relating to any part of Habam. There I was, caught in the crosshairs of someone who appeared to believe in me and my goals, and industry professionals who'd had enough success to know how to temper them with reality. Once Lorena started rubbing other people the wrong way, going so far as to receive an email back from a producer stating her behavior was getting inappropriate, I knew I needed to reevaluate some things. It was obvious Lorena was growing increasingly frustrated by my need to be pragmatic, and so knowing I get overwhelmed easily and panic if not given sufficient amount of time to make well-informed decisions, she began throwing even more urgency my way. Her own panic mixed with the hope I might get flustered enough to make a snap decision in her favor, especially if she peppered in a little fear. Worried someone might see my brilliant idea on social media and try to steal it out from under me... Lorena informed me she had set up a meeting with a public law firm to get How Bitches Are Made trademarked on my behalf. The truth was, I had been wanting to get How Bitches Are Made trademarked for years, and had even inquired with my entertainment lawyer about what that process entailed to do so. So, while it was something I'd been interested in doing on my own eventually, I was apprehensive about doing it with Lorena. For starters, How Bitches Are Made was my creation, not hers— And after a comment made following a movie we watched together, I had my suspicions about trusting her. A few weeks before, we'd watched The Founder at my house in the desert. If you've never seen it, you should. It tells the story of Ray Kroc, who notoriously stole McDonald's out from under the two brothers who created it, through a legal loophole. For most of us, it's a cautionary tale. For a mere few like Lorena, it's the triumphant story of a heroic underdog. As the credits rolled, she turned to me and said, I know everyone hates Ray Kroc, but the first thing they teach you about how to be successful at Harvard Business School is best first steal. It's the same thing with Mark Zuckerberg. Those brothers were idiots. Ray was a genius. In that moment, my antenna went up, and dread set in. So when it became quite obvious to me that Lorena would and could file for a trademark with or without me— Especially considering how much of my original IP she had stored on her hard drive, I knew I had to go. I wasn't sure why the representative at the law office handed Lorena all the forms to fill out, especially considering it had been presented to me, the appointment had been set up on my behalf. But he assured me it was only basic contact info and wouldn't affect the actual filing. For me, that seemed fishy. I not only insisted my name and phone number be added to all the documents, I made sure Lorena put my name and address down as the primary. When they asked for the IP necessary to file, I made sure there were witnesses to see it coming directly from me, my personal effects, and my hard drive. I didn't want any discrepancy in the matter, should whatever I was sensing might happen occur. But before I could get my credit card out of my wallet, the public lawyer had taken Lorena's to process it. Though I'd immediately venmo her what I could once we were back in the car, and I knew there was still another step in the process before anything could be legally submitted and finalized, my heart sank. I knew it was the worst thing that could have happened. Later that afternoon, while sitting outside on her patio, Lorena suggested we start contacting our entertainment lawyers to draft up some terms of how we wanted to structure, quote, our company, end quote. I listened as she discussed what roles she wanted to play in the future, what values she thought she brought to the project, and what she had zero interest in ever being involved in—like the podcast, for instance. Then she expressed what she felt she should earn, should any of her contacts result in the sale of the script. I was shocked, especially when she explained that her shooting the initial sizzle we never used entitled her to half. It was all I could do to keep my eyes from popping out of my head— I had no idea how anyone could arrive at such ridiculous reasoning and then stay so adamant about it once challenged. The project was something for which I'd been working on, entirely on my own, since the very first acting job I ever had. Outside of the initial shoot, which she'd so badly ruined to the point I could never use it for anything, she had zero involvement— Even the work she'd been doing recently had never been discussed as anything more than a friend helping a friend, just as I'd been doing with her musical endeavors. Was it reasonable to give her a sales commission on any show she helped sell? Absolutely. But half? That was out of the question. This is when, naturally, I told Lorena we needed to pump the brakes. The truth was, I had no desire to go into business with her. I didn't need to. What I did need was time to focus on myself and strategize how to separate what felt like very enmeshed lives. By this point, I felt I was always at her place, on her schedule, dealing with her crises and mood swings while she continued to ridicule my personal life and interfere with my professional relationships and obligations. Knowing her previous patterns and reactions to relationship hiccups, however, I knew I needed to come up with a well-thought-out strategy or this would end very badly. So, careful not to rock the leaky boat I knew I was inside of, I told her I thought we should seize all work until our lawyers had drafted something up. Frustrated by and unsatisfied with my choice to take a beat, Lorena pressed on without me, arranging a photo shoot of her own she felt needed to happen in order to complete her redesign of my website that, once again, I'd never asked for. And that's when the bomb dropped. She'd asked me to pick up some camera equipment from a rental facility on my side of the hill that was close to my apartment, and I'd forgotten. When I broke the news to her, the train didn't just go off the rails. It straight up burst into fucking flames. Especially once I followed it up with my leaving town for a few weeks to visit my new nephew and grandmother. Lorena began screaming about how my leaving town was going to affect quote, our end quote, momentum. When that tactic didn't sway my travel plans— She likened it to throwing away everything, quote, we, end quote, had worked on. When that didn't affect my itinerary either, she flew into hysterics, declaring her life over if I weren't around to make sure she didn't end it. When I didn't take that bait, she went on the attack, ridiculing my personal life and disparaging me in the process. I had to admit, it was really quite riveting to see her tactics so vividly on display, Not to mention her transparent attempts at emotional manipulation and psychological warfare. The truth was, I had seen it before. I just never understood what it was enough to avoid it. And when none of her attempts to change my mind worked, she informed me she had bought a ticket home to visit her own family and that she would be leaving town before I was. She followed that up with saying she could no longer rely on me and needed to focus on a plan for herself. At least that much we'd agreed on. Though I'd always anticipated having to be the one to acknowledge the inevitable, I was relieved Lorena had taken it upon herself to do so. Finally calm, she expressed her disappointment and unhappiness as I listened, filling in silences, meant to cue my own responses with I understand's and I'm sorry's, that I didn't actually mean. To show there were absolutely no hard feelings, I offered to drive her to the airport, even leaving a friend's play early to do so a friend who, unbeknownst to her, overheard the entire phone call. He actually pointed out how things sounded like an overdramatic breakup and wondered if perhaps things were a tad more complicated on the Reina's end than I'd realized. Determined to make things as amicable as possible, I dropped her off at the airport terminal, hugged her goodbye at the curb, and watched her disappear behind the sliding glass doors forever. Though it wasn't intended to be. I felt good enough about the way everything had ended that our friendship would continue, albeit in a much more distance and healthier way. But all of that quickly changed the minute I landed in NorCal a few days later. When I stepped off the plane, I had an enormously long email waiting for me in my inbox. Seeing its length, I suspected it might read like that of a breakup letter and decided to put off reading it until I was in the proper place to do so. What I found it ended up being, however, was an emotional tirade filled with nothing but expletives and abuse. It was like she'd gone into an alcoholic rage, fueled by the bitterness she felt for anyone and everyone who'd ever scorned her— It was then I realized perhaps my friend had been right. Maybe there was the romantic aspect to our relationship I'd never noticed her having. She went on to verbally abuse me in ways I've never before experienced. And while I could go back to cite particular points from that email, I love myself far too much to do it just for the sake of it being at her expense in this podcast. What is important to mention, however, was how she ended the email. She informed me she would be moving to Atlanta within the month's end and she even had the audacity to ask me to help her pack up her things. And not just that, she wanted me to fly back early from my trip to do so. Unfortunately for her, I wasn't like any of the boyfriends of her past she'd grown accustomed to having under her spell. I remember her once saying to me, quote, If there's one thing I know how to do, it's get them back. quote. Her attempts to do so with me were going to be extremely unsuccessful. So rather than respond... I chose not to acknowledge her email at all. That is, unless she either calmed down or until I had to. A couple days later and seemingly more calm, Lorena sent me a message saying we should, quote, discuss what to do about the trademark, end quote. Assuming she meant what we'd tell the law office in regards to where things were between us, I informed her I already had. I told them she no longer wanted anything to do with how bitches are made and that she was relocating to Atlanta. I'm not sure why relaying that same information she'd told me caused her to get as vindictive and hostile as she wound up getting, but I suspect it has everything to do with that comment made after the movie. Not only did she decline the rest of the payment I attempted to send her, she actually reached out to the company and told them she was not just still very much a part of my business. She had no intention of moving out to Atlanta. That had merely been another tactic she'd used to try and get me to react— She encouraged the law office to push the application through, and because they'd processed the payment directly from her, they did as she instructed. With the writing on the wall, I immediately went into survival mode, attempting to protect myself and all my IP in every way I could think of. I changed all my passwords and immediately reached out to anyone on my team she'd ever spoken to with me on the phone— I told them she'd gone off the rails and to not just ignore her, but block her altogether, predominantly when it came to the company producing my podcast. Though she'd continued to express what a waste of time she felt it was, and had vehemently expressed wanting nothing to do with it, I just had this feeling. Sure enough, hours later, she'd reached out to my entire team, threatening them with lawsuits if they released the only active product I had, which of course, was the podcast or if they'd got involved with any aspect of the concept. She'd actually told them it was her IP that I had stolen from her, then lied about it being under a trademark dispute. A trademark can only be disputed if something is actually trademarked. The application she had filled out had yet to even be submitted. Shortly after, she began accosting my entertainment lawyer, stating that unless we offered her, quote, "'reasonable compensation,' end quote, she was going to take legal action." Unlike her, I hadn't been in and out of courts multiple times, feuding with former lovers and employers over the last decade enough to know whether or not this was as serious as it seemed, which is likely why I acted like it was. Quite frankly, though, it seemed like a joke. It had to be. After all, how could a person claim anything was their IP when the stories were so specific to my own life? It wasn't her mom who had a stroke. She'd never purchased a home in the desert after a revelation on mushrooms, and as far as I knew, she certainly hadn't slept with or dated anyone with a unicorn penis. My stories were so personal, it was beyond refutable. Still, my anxiety persisted. So physically noticeable that my sister-in-law, a police officer, told me to start documenting my pain and suffering on video should I ever need to use it in litigation. I stayed up all night that day. Pulling every email, every text message, every voicemail she'd ever sent me, and dragging them all onto my hard drive. Her inconsistencies, contradictions, manipulations, and verbal abuse I knew I need evidence of. For the rest of my trip, I was unable to be present. Too worried I'd lose everything I'd worked so hard on if I didn't start taking the necessary steps I needed to protect myself. In what would end up being the second-to-last time I'd ever see my grandmother— I spent the entire three weeks I was there to see her, either on my computer or cell phone, speaking with lawyers and learning about my options, instead of with her. Lorena wasn't just threatening my life's work. She was jeopardizing my other relationships in the process. I had no idea how things had even escalated to the point they had. How something I'd brought to fruition before I'd even met Lorena could be challenged in the ways she was challenging them. Every time I got another email or text message, my teeth chattering returned. And though I desperately wanted to just block her, I knew I needed to accumulate as much evidence as possible. Though my lawyers ultimately informed me she had no case whatsoever, they assured me that by having Lorena sign and accept an offer letter, she'd either be legally bound to disappear forever, or we could effectively show a judge we attempted to reconcile rationally. It was hard not to see it as buying back my idea from someone who'd never been a part of it— but I recognized there were certain things I'd gained by swallowing my pride in doing so, peace of mind being first and foremost, and that to me was worth more than anything. So I calculated the hours she'd spent performing certain tasks, most of which I'd never asked for, as well as the going rate for professionals in those fields, and came up with a number. I'm sure anyone reviewing the document would have raised their eyebrows after seeing just how many different careers Lorena had mastered enough to award her the same going rate as industry professionals. Nevertheless, it was more than fair, as reiterated by my legal team, not to mention my friends and family. Since the law firm charged double to print the letter on company letterhead and handle it themselves, my attorney electronically drafted up the offer for me to send to her instead. We gave Lorena exactly one week to review and either accept or counter. I'm not sure if she didn't recognize it as a legally binding document or if she's just that insane. Either way, she wound up ignoring it, waiting until the day after it expired to send a counter with her own time of expiry. Boy, did it paint a picture for the kind of lunacy lawyers are unfortunately quite accustomed to seeing. For me, however, it was a first. She wanted 50% of the company—a company that did not exist, mind you—in perpetuity, or $500,000 cash. She included her own breakdown of how she arrived at this number, citing her version of jobs performed and the corresponding rates she felt she should be compensated for doing them. Did you know that a friend offering an opinion on a light fixture you contemplate purchasing from Wayfair constitutes paying them a designer's commission? On the bright side, I guess I'm really going to make out when she receives my bill for cooking her dinner all those nights, at the same rate Gordon Ramsay charges as a private chef. You really do learn something new every day. With regard to the trademark, because both of our names had been on the original documents, the law office told us they would need both of our signatures in order to take the next step and file. Suffice it to say, they hit a roadblock, and after getting contradictory information from Lorena, who maintained we were still very much working together and urged them to push it through, and me, who clearly didn't, they reached out to both of us in an email to get the story straight. In no uncertain terms, I made it very clear I did not want to move forward and proceeded to loop in all of them with my legal team. Suffice it to say, they canceled the service and refunded Lorena in full after that. My original payments to her, however, still waiting. Determined to hang on to anything she might be able to use as evidence she was ever involved in anything resembling a company then, Lorena refused to stop payment on the dropshipping store she'd set up, which charged her monthly, and since I'd never been involved in that process to begin with, I had no way of canceling it myself, or so she may have thought. I contacted the company directly, informing them of the potential legality surrounding the situation, and they immediately canceled the payments, even refunding her charges I had never authorized to be associated with my website. The last and final time I'd hear from Lorena was immediately after the podcast was released. She'd contacted iTunes, filing a copyright infringement. They informed me they'd be pulling the podcast from their site within seven days, unless I refuted her claim, which obviously I would. And in the event that I did, she would then have 30 days to file a formal lawsuit, which, of course, she never did. But at the time, I certainly wasn't ignorant enough to hope for that outcome. I immediately contacted my lawyer who broke the most horrifying news of all, which is how copyrights work. Since some of my edits had been done on Lorena's computer— I needed to re-record, re-edit, and replace anything she might have on her hard drive, which she could argue were the originals. And that wasn't just for the mini she'd touched. Everything from my photo shoot with the girls had to be scrapped, not to mention the photos Lorena had taken of me nearly four years earlier. Technically, unless she had signed a release for me to use them, they were hers. And for one she hadn't been behind the lens on, there was no way to prove who had been. They'd been taken on her camera, stored on her hard drive, and run through her computer for Photoshop. So, virtually everything I'd done had to be scrapped and redone within seven days. Perhaps the biggest blow in the whole ordeal was centered once again around my short. Any section she'd taken upon herself to edit was unsafe to use. And while I would just as rather have had a new editor work on it altogether— I knew we'd waste way too much time rebuilding the entire file, so I contacted Clint and informed him of the situation. He told me his rate to re-edit the pieces Lorena had touched, sympathizing with me enough to even offer a discount, then asked me to send back the same hard drive he'd put everything on before handing it back to Lorena to give to me. Remember those points I said we'd circle back to? Lorena had pulled all of those files off of my hard drive and onto her computer, before deleting them off my disk entirely, which I'd only discovered once Clint had asked me for them back. Now, what appeared to be all of the originals sat inside her equipment only, with no way to prove where they'd actually come from. Unless, of course, I could. I don't question whether or not Lorena knew what she was doing when she did it, I witnessed her do the same thing with musical artists she'd worked with for years, almost as if it were her own little insurance policy. She'd hold art hostage just in case she and the artist needed to go their separate ways, which, no surprise, they usually did. And then she'd make them sign ridiculous contracts in order to re-obtain their IP, promising Lorena a percentage of money in perpetuity that would never come, since having said contracts often interferes with other parties getting involved with an artist to begin with. And so... I was about to learn the biggest lesson of my life, in both friendships and business. An education, I'm sure at least, according to Lorena, I owe her a commission for, since I'm confident she'd charge a rate for her services as a professor of law. Because I'm fucking amazing, and have fucking amazing community, I was able to call in favors. And believe me, I made sure everyone knew they were favors, with contracts and signatures to affirm as much— and managed to pull everything together within that seven-day period. So, for those of you who noticed the changes in the podcast's album art, the website, the mini sewed, the deleted social media posts, now you know why. And in case you were wondering whatever happened to that sizzle, well, I'm happy to say that you can finally see it for yourselves. Just please forgive the quality. It was filmed almost five years ago. Mark and I rebuilt it and re-edited the entire thing ourselves, which is now the only way I do things, just so there isn't any confusion. There comes a time in every woman's life when she must ask herself what is important to her. For me, this was helping naive and inexperienced women like myself navigate their way through dark and confusing times such as this one. But it was all I could do to keep my chin up and charge forward in the eye of the storm. After all, I'd run into so many roadblocks, I couldn't help but wonder if it was the universe aggressively nudging me to quit while I was ahead. I was tired, discouraged, and after witnessing how Lorena had so horrifically misinterpreted my message in all of this, I wondered if other women might do the same. You see, there was this period of time when she began using the bitch card as an excuse to be rude, entitled, and reckless— And I just don't want a hand in perpetuating that kind of attitude or energy in the world. Especially since it's directly against the overall objective here. What sucks about this whole ordeal was that it eventually morphed into a mission to prove myself. Prove that these were my stories. That this was my work. That I had done it all alone and continue to do so. I needed my hard work. I needed all that fighting and suffering to be for something. And for me... That's just not a very effective motivator. The casualty of that is a loss of momentum, a doubt in the effectiveness of my endeavors, and hard work cast aside that's almost too traumatic to pick back up and share with the world. So while I ultimately decided to protect my content by getting trademarked on my own the right way, I gave myself the much-needed break I deserved to reflect on what I wanted to do, how I wanted to move forward, and why I even would. But even just recounting this story alone, I get to see how much I've grown, how much I've learned, how strong I am and how proud I am for what I'm capable of accomplishing. And I know the effects of those realizations on a happier, healthier lifestyle. And I want that for so many people, if not to just make the world a genuinely better place, which is ultimately why I decided to continue to write and tell my stories. And that's the story of how bitches are made welcome back everybody so why am i telling you guys this story this week well this is a cautionary tale without it being a tale at all but it's a cautionary tale about friendships business and really the importance of removing toxicity on a very large and very very serious scale We haven't talked a lot about the pain associated with female friendships on this podcast. I know I've mentioned it a couple of times. I think that kind of betrayal is so painful that most of us don't want to go there because it's almost like admitting to ourselves people have the ability to be just so flippant and casual with intentionally hurting someone's feelings. And I felt the deepest amount of betrayal and heartbreak perhaps I ever have from this relationship and particularly this instant, this story. Um, I had referred to my friend James that you guys will know from The Perfect Prick Part 1 and 2. I referred to him as the one in the sense of the one I'd been searching for to be my best friend. Not my best friend in the form of a life partner, but just my best friend. And I wanted to give you a little bit more on that backstory, which for me, since... (sighs) As little as I can remember being, I have constantly been in pursuit of this romanticized, I guess it really is, idea of having a best friend. Perhaps that's because of exposure to, you know, countless forms of entertainment where friendships really are the pinnacle of our community. So they're very, very important. But more specifically, I've always been fascinated with shows like Sex and the City, where, you know, Carrie has her really, really small, tight-knit group of friends that she relies on and grows up with, and they, they just have each other's backs no matter what. And I feel like that archetype, that dynamic, is so embedded in the media that we watch and are exposed to as children throughout the course of our life as we grow up. But it's really... It's really not indicative or reflective of the kind of friendships that really do exist. Um, My mom used to tell me, you know, you're lucky if you make it out of life with one or two really good close friends that you can count on. And it's true. I think we grow up thinking we're supposed to have all of these really deep connections with a lot of people and it's unattainable. It's not realistic. Now, if you are somebody and you're like, I've got a lot of really great, close friends good for you you might be the exception or you might be about to enter a transitional period of your life where you'll see that that's going to change (laughs) and I don't I don't say that to be mean I just say that in you know the things we have talked about previously relationships change they come and go they evolve they diminish So it's just kind of a thing that's constantly changing as our lives change and people come in and out of your life for different reasons at different times. There's that, a reason, a season, a lifetime, which I believe was an episode title we had of the Habam and quarantine season. Point being, at the time when I was younger, I didn't realize that I was being, for lack of a better term, manipulated by the things that I was watching. So I was always looking for this really, really great best friend. And I was always disappointed or underwhelmed or betrayed. And I think where it really hit a pinnacle, aside from this story, was when I was in elementary school. And I had this story up on the original How Bitches Are Made blog. It's no longer there. I will probably make a recording of that story in the future or put it back up on howbitchesaremade.com now. But I had this story that I shared with my early followers of this girl that had moved into our neighborhood and went to our school and she effectively over the course of a year or so um turned a whole school against me or what I should say is she excluded me singularly from an entire school and she was your classic mean girl she infiltrated my what happened to be my group of friends and um she would just you know started manipulating everybody getting them to like very mean girls literally (laughs) that storyline she would say things that weren't true or just true enough to be you know contorted and eventually she created a club and you could tell who members of the club were based on who had their right pinky finger painted blue with blue nail polish And you had to be invited into this club. But when I was invited into the club, I had to take a test that nobody else had to take. And the test involved a trick question. And this will give you a sense of how much it stuck with me. I still remember it. The question was, what is JTT's real name? And those of you who are my age will know that JTT was Jonathan Taylor Thomas. He was the heartthrob from Home Improvement. And Jonathan Taylor Thomas was his stage name which ironically at the time i didn't know what a stage name was i wasn't thinking about being an actor in elementary school yet and so i answered jonathan taylor thomas i thought the question was what did the initials stand for well i got it wrong it was jonathan thomas weiss which apparently was his real legal name which i don't even know if that is true i'm gonna look at that now but um i didn't pass the test And it was specifically designed so that I would flunk it. And so what ended up happening was literally every single person in that school, K through fifth grade, all had blue pinkies except for me. And so it was something I've really carried with me in my life of feeling totally singled out and like a lone wolf. Now I wear that as a badge of honor and a point of pride. I love being a lone wolf. But at the time, especially when you're that young, it really affected me. And I think that was kind of the catalyst for setting into motion, like going out on this relentless quest to find my person in the form of a friend. So another thing that I didn't realize actually until I had already recorded this chapter was I said for those of you who might remember Double D. Well Double D was actually a story that I shared on that original blog as well. So a lot of you listening to this podcast that weren't original followers of the very beginning when I had you know just a blog. Um, Double D, my dad named this boyfriend that I had Double D, and uh, he couldn't stand him, (laughs) like many of the guys I dated. (laughs) And um, so if you were confused when you heard that, don't be. um, He's just somebody that I once worked with that was very... Poignant and prominent in my very young adult life when I'd first moved to LA. And he's just a a figure from the original blog that happens to now be making his appearance on this podcast for the first time in this story. So, with all that being said, let's talk about the things that I wanted to really touch upon in this story. The first one is toxicity. I told you guys at the start of the season that was going to be a big, big focus. This is why, <laughs> because when when you let so much toxicity into your life and you don't have control over it, let alone the ability to recognize it's there, it can really do tremendous damage and it did for me with this story. I've said a couple episodes back, i had finally gotten to the point where I'd mastered how to break my patterns in romantic relationships, how to recognize toxicity, how to remove it from my life effectively. I'd really become a master at at doing all these things in my romantic sector. And it took a while for me to realize that I needed to do that in every facet of life. Professional, friendly, familial in order to, again, cultivate this life that I've always been after. And what's really fascinating is that my patterns in finding a mate were no different than my patterns, as it turned out, in finding a best friend. Which makes sense when you think about relationships as a whole. But um, they were unhealthy patterns, nonetheless. And they came with a level of desperation in place of where boundaries should have been instead. So some of these things included, these patterns that I had included seeing potential in people and viewing those people as if they were living up to their potential instead of actually seeing them for who they were and how they needed to grow. Feeling like I could fix somebody if I saw that somebody had problems, whether it was my desire or I felt it was my responsibility or obligation to help them break these patterns. That was something I felt I needed to do giving people the benefit of the doubt. So that kind of goes with the whole title of this chapter, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. That kind of falls into giving people the benefit of the doubt. Is you give them a chance, they fuck up, and you give them a second chance, you should know to walk away, right? Well, I would give them third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances, and couldn't for some reason get it through my head that they were a lost cause. I needed to walk away. That wasn't me giving up on them. That was me recognizing that's not my responsibility to fix that person. But it was also perpetuated by the fact that I saw their potential. And I invested in, in their potential more than I chose to see their flaws and how they could affect me, which is again why I'm telling you this story. And these were all things that I did with Lorena. And over the course of, God, 10, 15 years, however long I've known her, last chapter I mentioned how important it is to break these patterns for achieving a healthier and happier life. But in regards to this kind of scale, it's important to break these patterns because they can really put you into some serious and potentially dangerous situations. Dangerous Not so much with this story, but I would say potentially dangerous in reference to Kevin's story. He had to get a restraining order for someone that, after swapping stories with him, was doing things no differently than what Lorena was doing with me. There were a lot of similarities, and mine was serious on a potentially legal scale. But Kevin's was serious on a safety scale. So you have to be careful. It's very easy for us to think the best in people just day-to-day subconsciously. Like, people are generally good. They're not out to harm us. They're not malicious. They're not deceitful. Everyone's trying their best. But we all know that there are those few more more people than we'd like to admit but overall there are few people that really can wreak havoc on our safety and our security and ability to survive whatever that means survive meaning your heart is beating or survive meaning you can afford a roof over your head It's really important. It's not just something that we consider to have good friends or bad friends or a circle or community that we can rely on. It's actually something we need to do to self-preserve. So I really want you to consider that as I tell you and as we continue to break down this story more. When I finally started to note the unhealthiness of this particular relationship, it was... In many forms, it was how Lorena handled cutting out her own toxic friends or relationships. So really quickly before I dive too much into that, I'd like to remind people of what toxicity is exactly. You don't want to throw that word around. We truly have to understand what it means and what it looks like. It's people who create unnecessary drama, people who create emotional insecurities in others, it's frankly emotional abuse, and it's mental manipulation for personal gain. So the drama thing, you can outgrow, but you have to really examine people's patterns to artfully and successfully determine whether or not they're officially toxic. In other words, you might have a friend right now that is very dramatic and causes a lot of drama in your life. Fine, that could just be a reflection on how infantile they are. And they might outgrow that. So your paths could reconnect later and maybe that friend isn't so dramatic anymore. That's very common. People will be friends in their 20s or their teenage years. Let's let's start with the teenage years. They, they become friends in high school, they go on to college, they grow apart. Or people meet in college and then they go into the real world, they grow apart. Or people meet when they're young adults, they never went to college, and they're in their 20s and they're really good friends and then You know, later 20s, they kind of peter off and then they reconnect in their 30s. This happens often. So if you have a friend that's dramatic or causing a lot of drama in your life, it's totally fine to like remove them with the understanding that it might be a temporary removal, right? That's temporary toxicity. Or developmental toxicity. The other things that I'm talking about are people that are truly, truly toxic because they have so many mental health issues that they haven't worked out and it gets harder to work them out the older they get. So those are the people that you really want to like be analyzing and considering whether or not it's worth it to have them in your life or it's better to remove them. So one of the things that I first noticed about Lorena's toxicity and how she was managing the toxicity in her life was the people she was cutting out, why she was cutting them out, and how she was cutting them out. So similar to my experience with her on the 4th, she didn't have a correct understanding or idea of what toxicity was and that's because she had so much within her and true to people that are really mired in the mess and can't see clearly they blame it on everyone else that was kind of the first time when she was like I can't deal with people's dramas you'll remember that from that story at the fourth of July I was thinking to myself well I know I'm not being dramatic because I just had a trauma And somebody that is calling that trauma drama is uneducated or they don't have the correct understanding of this idea. That was kind of my first tip off where I was like, oh, she has a lot going on and I need to temporarily remove her from my life for the time being till I figure out how I want to proceed if I do. And the fact of the matter was reflecting on that situation is she was very quick to write me off as toxic. She had no understanding of that. What I was engaged in and bringing into her life was not toxicity It was trauma. I was going through something very traumatic and needed a friend. And her misunderstanding of that created a rift. So I saw her so quickly to remove me as toxicity. But then I watched her do this with a couple of her friends, one of which was a life coach. And her friend that was a life coach, you know, she wrote off because she perceived her as being toxic when really her friend just had a lot of stress because she had kids and a, and a partner who wasn't really helpful. And she just didn't want to be there for her friend anymore. And she kept saying, well, it's because they're toxic. But for me, I could very clearly see it was just because she didn't want to actually be the kind of friend these people thought of her as. Even with her therapist that she stopped seeing. These were people that she kept calling toxic and they weren't. So this was a pattern of hers that I picked up on that I started to examine and put in my good to know file. And it was interesting to see along the lines of her therapists how she handled people who were trying to help her. She would get so defensive and so upset about them being brutally honest. And these people were being honest with the intention of helping her. Look, it's not easy to tell somebody they have a problem. It's not easy to point out somebody's flaws if you're a decent human being. But you do it because you know that doing so could help them improve and get beyond the things that are holding them back. That's why I do this podcast, right? It's not... It's not easy to hear negative things that we do. It's not easy to look inside and be like, oh, I fucked up here or this is a bad pattern of mine because we immediately feel embarrassed or shameful. That's your ego. Get rid of your ego. Who cares? This is why I'm such a huge proponent of going to therapy and why so many people are reluctant to do so. They don't want to be confronted with the ugly version of themselves. But as you all know from listening to me every week, doing that, is what gets you to be the most beautiful version of yourself and be really fucking fulfilled. So it was interesting to see her handle people like that. Not just her therapist, but this guy that she dated very briefly who was very, very curt and very blunt with her about the things she needed to do. And everything that she would tell me he was telling her, I totally agreed with. He just had the balls to tell her, whereas I didn't yet. But I really loved him for doing that and respected him for doing that. Another way I saw the toxicity in her was with all of her boy dramas. And you have to keep in mind, at this point, we're in our 30s. So, drama's a lot easier to excuse for someone in their 20s who's still developing mentally, physically, so your brain is still developing in addition to emotionally. But when you're in your 30s, it's less cute. (laughs) It's more frustrating and more indicative that there's actually a fundamental development problem or issue. Which is fine. That can be fixed. So if you feel like that describes you, again, do not feel shame. We all have things to work on, is the point. But the way that she would handle these dramas in her 30s with dating, it just started to get very concerning. She'd go after people that she wanted to save because the truth was she wanted them to save her and she would give and give and give and then it didn't matter what they gave to her she never felt like it was enough and then she became very vindictive when they didn't reciprocate the way she felt they should or at the level she felt they should and it took me some time to realize but she was doing essentially the same thing to me in ways perhaps the biggest thing for me though was misunderstanding the concept of how bitches are made and using it kind of as like a passport or an excuse to behave very bitchily and in a negative way just kind of telling people off very honestly but without any kind of tact And those of you who really understand the concept know that bitch is an acronym for being in total control of herself. And when you are in total control of yourself, you are very thoughtful of the way you word things and how they might land on other people. How those people might hear it. How it might affect them. There is a responsibility that each of us have in the way that we talk to people because it does set off a chain reaction. So we're not obligated to help people. But if we choose to do that, we need to be very thoughtful about how we're talking to people so that they don't feel attacked or belittled or emotionally compromised, right? when she was going around talking about how you know she loved this concept and she's a bitch now because she told this person that that they're a loser like that's not being the right kind of bitch right you can tell somebody hey I've noticed as your friend you have a shortcoming here I just think it would behoove you to work on that so that all your relationships might benefit I'm sure I'm not the only person that feels this way that would be an example so going back to it being important to understand what toxicity is and evaluating people's patterns I started linking together every bridge that Lorena had burned in the past. There was a time when she was getting engaged to the man she was divorcing in this chapter. Look, I'm a very fucking loyal friend. To a fault, as this story conveys and really articulates. (laughs) This is an example of me being loyal. At this dinner, people were asked, I think there were about 25 women, people were asked to go around in a circle and talk about their favorite memory of Lorena. And literally... Every single person, I was the last one to go, every single person mentioned having a quote, breakup with Lorena at some point, some sort of conflict that happened over the course of their relationship that created this horrible rift and pause in their relationship before they inevitably linked back up. And I thought that's really fucked up. Like who says that at somebody's bridal shower? Like, just basically, it was like we were all talking shit to her face. And that really bothered me. So when it came to me, who happened to be the last person, I really went out of my way to only say kind and positive things. I became really defensive on her behalf because I just thought that that was really rude. I didn't see it the other way, which was, hmm, there were 24 other people here, and the common denominator in all these stories is Lorena. And all these people have had a negative, crazy experience. So that was one thing. Mine, of course, inevitably ended up being that 4th of July that I shared with you guys. And this was over 10 years later. But it inevitably happened with me. Then, of course, there was in the second chapter I shared with you guys of this season, No Place to Call Home, when the dogs bit her at her apartment. And I said, oh, we'll circle back to that later. Yeah, like everyone knows when dogs don't like people, it's suspicious, right? So, that was just something at the end of the day when all this was said and done. I thought back to and I was like, they fucking saw it. Those dogs had my back. <laughs> then I thought back to something really interesting as she had given me this list of editors for my short. And something that's important to note was Lorena had a history of creating her own sizzle for her own project that she was working on previously at the time with her now ex-husband and they had people interested in it so she had referred me to a couple editors that they had either reached out to or worked with on that knowing that thinking back to that it was interesting and very telling that only one picked up the phone for me and when I asked her about it she had never used him. He was on a short list, but they never ended up actually reaching out to him because they didn't need to. They'd found somebody. And all those people that I had reached out to prior never returned my call because I had cited her being my reference. So that was really insightful. And telling. Then, of course, there was the producer I mentioned sending her the email saying, basically, like, you're kind of getting inappropriate here. And that producer was somebody that was a successful showrunner that had content on air. That wasn't just somebody who was being an asshole. That was somebody who actually knew what they were doing, had told us that we had something, but that they couldn't be helpful. And I think the other factor is Lorena was trying to press her for the name of a contact at another facility that had helped her get her show on. And she didn't want to give up the name. And Lorena did not respect that a boundary she had. She kept pushing. And so the woman got really upset, understandably. Then of course there was my business professionals not taking a liking to her. She also had a history of getting fired from literally every job she ever had. And I think the thing that I ultimately realized that was her pattern. Was that she never believed in herself enough to truly take risks and chances and that's because she didn't really want to work that hard. A lot of people, especially now, just see what appears to be overnight successes or viral hits. That's not really it. A lot of people, of course there are people that get lucky going viral and stuff, but a lot of people have been pounding the pavement for years before they get a break and then the first time people hear about them they're like, oh my god, like overnight success. No, not the case. It takes a lot of work and when you set out to do something and it doesn't pay off as quickly as you think it should, you give up. Lorena was one of those people. She didn't actually want to do the really, really hard, consistent, long-term, intense work of believing in herself and doing whatever it took to get people to notice her she would get deterred and then cling on to somebody and then that relationship would fizzle or there would be a falling out. Whether with friends, with production companies, with things that she actually was hired to do, it was always the same. So that was a pattern that I really began to notice as well. And I think a lot of times we see the best in people, especially people we consider as friends, we don't see it from the other side. So I was just saying, God, you know, you tend to really find these bad productions. Or these bad people. But really, all the same things kept happening because she was the common denominator. And people like that, they support the narrative that it's everyone else's problem and not them by blaming it on everybody else, which we saw Lorena do with my thing in the story. she would say oh it's because these professionals are they're afraid to take a chance or they don't believe in you or they're lazy or they don't know what they're doing or they're amateurs it was always someone else's problem there was no self-checking and a perfect example of how she managed to manipulate herself into believing that time and time again was how she said that taylor swift stole her career i mean rather than being like yeah taylor did what i do but she did it way better i need to work harder She'd be like, "Ah, Taylor stole my career, so that slot's taken. I I guess I should give up. What? You can't blame everyone else, and you can't victimize yourself to the point where you're you're digging your own hole and burying yourself in that same grave, okay? Uh, One of the final things that I noticed about her, and this supports what I just said about work ethic, was she had said something to me that was really, really indicative of where her head was at and the vast difference between her and I her and me which was that she didn't want to have to go work at McDonald's that was what she said that she needed to find a money train in order to avoid having to go get a normal job all because she didn't want to just go get a job like talk about ego you guys there is nothing wrong with getting a fucking day job Or working at McDonald's for that matter. You do what you need to do to make the money you need to either invest in yourself, build a life, or fucking live. You do what you gotta do. I feel like everyone is so obsessed with being famous or getting quick success that we don't actually know what hard work looks like anymore. And that's why we're not getting successful because we're not willing to do the work. That was actually what got my attention about her. Amongst all these other things I was noting, but the real big kind of slap me in the face thing was I realized that that's a standard I innately have working really hard, having a really strong work ethic. And it is how I judge other people. If you don't, if you say things like, I don't want to go work at McDonald's, fuck you. Sorry. You have to work hard. For me to be in my circle, in my life, in in the, the group of people that I respect and admire or want to associate myself with. So like when I heard her say that comment and then I started considering all these other things, I was like I can't respect this person. I can't get on the same level as this person. It, it was a rude awakening. It was something that small but that big for me. It was a huge, huge shift to where I finally came to realize I needed to remove her from my life. The problem was I didn't know how because I was too far in. Why was I too far in? My negative patterns were only perpetuating other negative patterns to emerge. And those eventually began to harm my reputation and other relationships as well. This is why it's so, so, so important to break patterns and recognize toxicity within ourselves. Remember I said that if you don't remove toxicity, it will affect your other more healthier and normal relationships. And I mentioned this in The Perfect Prick, part one and two about my friend James. I tried to use my old patterns on him, but he was too healthy for it to work. The old pattern I tried to use was being like, hey, you know, I like your friend Kevin, don't tell him. And I fully expected him to tell him. This had worked in the past because I I did it with people who weren't, who didn't have boundaries, right? They didn't have a boundary. They were like, yeah, I'll I'll go fucking tell them. Not because I asked them to tell them. They just didn't have that boundary within them. Someone said, don't tell them something. And they were like, fuck it, who cares? And they told him. So now I meet somebody that actually is healthy and has boundaries. And I tell them to do that. And because they're healthy, they won't. (laughs) So I had to find a new method A new pattern. A new way to get what I wanted. A much healthier pattern. And more successful way to get what I actually wanted. And it worked. You recall that was using vulnerability. There is a seriousness of having boundaries. Because you don't know what people are capable of. I'm not just telling you to have boundaries, you know, so your dating life is easier and more successful. It's stories like this. This is why you need boundaries, because you don't know what people are capable of, especially if those people don't have boundaries. They can really fuck up your life. And it's not just enough to have boundaries either. You need to have your own back. How do you have your own back? by being armed with knowledge. So remember I said I didn't have boundaries when it came to work. I'd never considered the need. Well, this story was a real wake up call as to why I needed to have them because the fallout was just so terrible. This was not just an expensive lesson on many fronts. It was an expensive lesson emotionally. It was really really hard because of that betrayal which I mentioned earlier and we'll get to that in a sec. But let's talk first about the legality of things because it's important to educate yourself with this kind of stuff to prevent what happened to me from happening to you. I mentioned in the story that I wanted to get trademarked when I initially came up with this concept. I'd reached out to my entertainment lawyer many years prior to when this story took place. And he was not the person to talk to to get all the information that I ultimately would out of this situation. I was then directed to other people who knew a little bit more because this this was not his area of focus, whereas it was for the people I was referred to by him. But at the time, all I knew was that it cost an exorbitant amount of money, like upwards of five figures. And I didn't have that at the time. Certainly not to devote to this. So it was something that I kind of pushed to the side. And I was like, until there's more on the line to lose, you know, it doesn't make sense to put the money and go through, you know, all the lawyer fees and documents to deal with. Whereas if I had pursued that avenue at the time, just to educate myself, I probably would have been connected to very similar people that I was in this situation and they would have told me the same things as I learned here that would have actually made me more seriously consider getting trademarked and figure out a way to do so because there's a lot of nuances to getting trademarked and understanding copyright that people don't understand until it's too late so it's really important to educate yourself I kind of mentioned a couple things in this story hopefully you were paying attention to how copyright really does work always 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 keep the originals back it up multiple times always 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 have things signed printed drafted up Always, always, always have control over your own projects. Always, always, always keep emails. You have to keep copies of everything, especially. Aside from not really understanding or being exposed to the education of what goes into a trademark or copyright or why you want to do it, The other reason I didn't kind of pursue that avenue is because really, if I'm being honest with myself, I probably didn't believe in myself enough to think that this could ever be a real thing that would warrant a copyright or a trademark. And I figured until that was proven otherwise, I just wouldn't concern myself with it, which was a huge mistake. You always want to be educated. Whether you use that education or not, it will come into play at some point. And I think because it it was because of questioning myself and my potential, I think that's how Lorena was able to actually get in. Because here I was with someone who seemingly really believed in me and was showing interest and kind of giving me proof of why I should believe in it. And this was all in contrast to my reps, who seemed a little more apprehensive. Rightfully so, because of the nature of their business. They see really promising things with great potential, never never see the light of day. So it, it's not enough for things to just be really good. A multitude of other factors have to all align in order for something to be really successful and work. And I wasn't concerning myself with that at the time. All I was thinking was… They're apprehensive. That must mean they don't believe in this, or they're questioning me. I want to make it very clear: apprehension is not indicative of a lack of interest or belief, just as interest or belief is not indicative of true support. I think that that's really what was so heartbreaking and maybe why I didn't know how to handle things once I understood what was going on. So first of all, I do. I have this fear of confrontation. I don't like to be uncomfortable. Who does? It's not comfortable. I didn't know how to handle things, though, either. And by not knowing how to handle things, not having that experience or education, it cost me money. A lot of money. With regard to Lorena, the train just kind of kept going, and the ride kept getting more bumpy and detoured and complicated. And then eventually we ended up at a completely different destination than I thought we would. We cannot be afraid to say no to things from the initial minute we feel that discomfort. And we can't be afraid to say no to people. Because if we don't, we get ourselves into these sticky situations that are very difficult to get out of. Relationships get ruined. Your brand diminishes. That's why, again, it is so important to educate yourself with the law, especially with copyright and trademarking, and especially when it comes to business with family and friends. Especially when it comes to business with family and friends. I wanted to say that twice to make sure you really heard me. (laughs) After this all happened and I pressed on, I had to draft up these contracts when I had people do reenactments or when I had people come on as guest stars. And I was so uncomfortable asking people to sign them. And what was really fascinating to me was I would always do it. I'd be like, yeah, I had this thing happen. So like I have to do this now. And people's reaction would always be like, Yeah, I I would think it's weird if you didn't ask me to sign something. And I just thought that that was so interesting. I, I don't know why I was ever so afraid to bring legality into things. Maybe I thought it would scare people away. And you know what? It will scare people away. The wrong people. The people that would be apt to fuck you over. So yes, it is always important to have legality involved to protect yourself and make sure that you won't get fucked over. Because when you do, it is a motherfuck of a mess to clean up. And this is also why I want to reiterate the importance of being a whole person and being in total control of yourself because at the end of the day you really don't have anyone to rely on but yourself you can trust people but but people can let you down and I don't say that to be cynical and and make anyone feel sad the truth is you don't know what the future holds you don't know what people are capable of and at the end of the day it's up to you and you alone to have your own back there's so much power in having your own back for stories like this You want to make sure that you're in a position to take care of you and that you're not in a position to be manipulated and suffer the consequences of having been manipulated. So now let's talk a little bit about female betrayal and why this was so heartbreaking. I think when Lorena came back into my life and she was on meds and she had a therapist and this therapist, as it was relayed to me, was teaching her the same things, I think I had a lot of hope. And that hope came from this raw potential, these commonalities that I saw that she and I had from the very beginning. And I think for me, it was a moment of redemption. I was like, okay, here, our paths are finally like aligning and the timing is right. And now we're going to have that female friendship I always suspected we could have. And it was going to be everything that I fantasized about since I was little. And she was going to understand all my plights and trials and tribulations because hers were so similar to my own. I think a lot of us find instant connections with people who have commonalities with us. Especially nowadays. Especially when we connect with people over being victims. You gotta be really, really careful. But before I delve too much into that, I think realizing the truth about why Lorena wanted to be my friend. It wasn't because she felt the same way I did about having a wonderful kind of female friendship. It was because she was interested in finding a life preserver, having a band-aid, and those were two things that I was probably so used to being, I didn't even realize that that's what I was being in female friendships. I started to notice it in romantic relationships, but I never realized it in my friendships. So... I felt used and I was used as a result of my faults, which is just like insult to injury, right? It's like pouring salt on the wound. Like anyone looking for a victim to prey on. And I don't mean that as maliciously as it sounds, because I don't think she was trying to be malicious. I think this was just, you know, a primal instinct to survive. She found my weakness. And my weakness was my desperation for a true female friendship. And That created a false sense of security to where I let my guard down and she was able to get in and take from me what she needed. So going back to a lot of us finding connections with people we share commonalities with, I want to talk about what a true friend is. A true friend should support growth and offer a difference of opinion to challenge yours so that you can grow to some degree. There's a story that I'm a little bit apprehensive to share, but I think it's really important to share. At the start of the pandemic, when I was moving out of my apartment in LA, it was presented to me that there would be a going away gathering from my building. And keep in mind, I'd been in the desert so often. I didn't know that this was something they were doing every Friday is everyone in my building would go outside and sit in a socially distanced circle and talk to each other and drink and have a good time. And they had said, well, we know this is your last weekend in in the apartment. We'd love to have a going away gathering for you. Which I thought was really, really nice and thoughtful and kind. And I'm always a sucker for thoughtfulness and kindness. And so I went out there and I hung out with them. And it was really, really nice. And I kind of realized like this was probably something they did all the time. And they just happened to call it a going away thing. Because it really wasn't about me. Not that I needed it to be. But it was just about neighbors hanging out and keeping each other company. And I remember at some point... The conversation turned political. And, you know, I'm a very neutral politician, if you will. I am logical. I see both sides of every situation. And I really believe in independent thinking. And a comment was made that I didn't agree with because I thought it was very extreme and I said, "Well, you know, I, I think like extreme on both sides are really bad. And again, I'm being very, very vague here because I don't want to single people out or make people feel uncomfortable. I'm being very PC, which is something I never am. But um, that comment that I made was met with extreme disdain and ridicule, and I immediately felt like a black sheep and unwelcome. And I think looking back, that was my first experience with extremism before the concept of extremism entered mainstream media. That was before these great divides were being established. And I felt it. And I had a huge problem with it. And I will tell you that it swayed me from one political party line to the other. And um, I see it happen on both sides. And I don't agree with it. I think everyone needs to be independent thinkers that are logical, weigh both sides of the equation. And the thing that's really unfortunate is Lorena and I came from two, I don't want to say polar opposite because we we're both in the middle, but we each lean different ways. And any time that I expressed a belief, she would respectfully listen and then express her belief, which got me to open up my beliefs more. And that's how people grow and evolve. You don't shut down their way of thinking. You invite a larger conversation by making it a safe space and listening to people respectfully, not feeling like you need to change their mind or prove yourself right, but listening to people respectfully and then expressing your opinion in contrast and having them do the same. Creating a safe space where you can actually have a very valuable conversation that is effectively more prone to changing someone's mind than the other way around. And that was actually remarkably something that Lorena and I were very, very good at. Which makes this whole thing so much sadder. (laughs) So I think a true friend should really... Provide you that safe space and offer growth in the way of hearing what your perspective is, what your opinion is, without feeling like they need to change it. They can challenge it by just saying, Oh, you know, well, that's interesting. I didn't consider that side because the way I look at that same issue from my side is this. Oh, fascinating. I didn't think about it that way either. Now new thoughts start to take shape. You see what I'm saying? That is actually a very healthy relationship. So, what concerns me about where we're at right now as a country is that everyone is so divided. No one's having that conversation. So not only is there a lack of unity, there's a lack of growth. I just want you all to sit with that and think about that for a minute and reflect on how you might be able to change that from whatever side you're standing on. Um, Okay. So aside from that little political rant, I felt I needed to share because it is relevant to this. Um, there were things that I began noticing that stuck out as sore thumbs with regard to Lorena, like the controlling nature, the lack of me having my own life, the constant need of hers to have attention or the obligation I felt to her. These were all things that started to feel in real time, like I was in a romantic relationship. And I think When I started to wrap my head around that, there was kind of a level of betrayal too because I felt like there was this emotional warfare going on similar to what I'd successfully abolished from my romantic life. So in a way, that kind of felt like I was regressing and I wasn't going to let that happen which allowed me to look at the relationship differently but it also broke my heart a little bit because I had such high hopes and... (gasps) expectations, which we all know what happens when you have expectations. Once I could witness things from afar, um, I was privy to it all. And I, I think that's when the heartbreak really started to set in before all the legal shit, to be honest with you. Um, I started to see all the ways that she had been subtly manipulating me. And again, I want to make it very clear. I don't think that this person was doing it to be vindictive or mean. I think this was really her struggling to survive or failing to realize that she was capable of surviving on her own without hitching her wagon to anyone else's train. We've talked about this before. Manipulation never works. I would try to teach Lorena not to do things to get a result, But because it was a true boundary. And she wasn't grasping that lesson. She wasn't. She was using the habam thing as a passport. Like, no, I'm going to do this to get this result because that's what you said works. And I'm like, no, you're missing the really big fundamental element, which is doing it for yourself because it's best for you. So I really want to make sure that everyone listening understands what I just said and doesn't take away from this what Lorena did. Because that's wrong. One of the things that she would do to this effect was threatening to end her life. And I remember I had a very honest conversation with her one day where I said, you do this a lot. I've seen you do it with ex-boyfriends. Do you actually feel like you're capable of doing that? Or is it a tactic? Is it an empty threat? I really want you to think about it. And there there was something that happened in her life that provided the opportunity to have... This one-on-one, very real, vulnerable conversation. I'm not going to say what that, that was. But she did come clean and told me that she was doing it for attention. You guys, this is not unlike what Kevin was going through with his ex. <laughs> this level of manipulation and lack of self-care and taking accountability, it prevents you from getting what you want. And by blaming it on others, you're never going to get what you want you're just going to keep making your life more and more difficult and perpetuating toxicity that just notoriously and consistently gets in your way to the point where you can actually end up in very serious situations that are not fun or pleasant to deal with. And that speaks to what happened to her, the opportunity I'm referring to that provided this conversation. So I want you to reflect on Lorena's behavior in this story emotionally and translate it into a romantic relationship scenario. And then I want you to think about if you've reacted this way in either sense. I'm not saying this to make you feel shameful. I'm getting you to look at maybe patterns that you have that are not effective at getting you what you want. Be honest with yourself because just like we know from AA and NA, the first step is admitting you have a problem. There's no shame in having a problem. There's shame in knowing you have a problem and doing nothing about it and blaming it on everyone else and victimizing yourself and then creating a community around other people that do the same thing. Not cool. Not good for you. Um, really, the reason I told you guys this story is because this podcast, this journey, this concept, it has really helped me personally to grow – And it's also helped me therapeutically to look back at my life and really see things objectively. It's also made me really see the need for others to do the same. Lorena sort of being the vehicle to showcase that. I hope that by giving you guys these episodes, these explanations, and telling you these stories, you're not just able to find camaraderie and validation through your own similar experiences – but that you're actually able to remove your ego enough to see the ways that you can improve and grow beyond where you are now that might be limiting you from getting what you really want in and out of life. I'm going to be totally honest with you guys. When I wrote this story, as what tends to happen with every story, it does tend to come from an initially spurned place, right? I feel like someone's wronged me and I need to get it out. But what always ends up happening as I'm writing it, this is why it's so therapeutic, is it becomes less about that person and what they did to me and more about what control I have over eliminating that stuff from entering my life in the first place. I think if more of us did that, we would be healthier. Our relationships would be healthier. The world would be healthier. I don't tell you guys these stories because I need to get the final word in or I need to embarrass people or I need to expose people. It's really because these are the stories that have shaped and defined the most poignant periods of my life because they've incited exponential growth. And I really, really think the other reason I felt so heartbroken by Lorena is because it did seem like somebody got it and and was really excited to like have other people get it too. And then to kind of realize that they didn't get it at all and they didn't really want to do it from a good place of making the world better. It was just disappointing. And it really caused me to reflect on what I was doing and if it was ever going to be effective. I really didn't want people to come away from it like Lorena did. Um, this isn't about being bitter. If you've been following this podcast from the beginning, hopefully you understood that. This wasn't about, you know, entitlement or getting what you deserve and making sure other people got what they deserved. This was always about getting the life that you deserve by doing hard work and recognizing these things that we do that make it harder on us than it needs to be. And I hope that all of these stories have inspired you to do some inner reflection of your own in the very least, but I also hope to some degree they've improved your life. I always invite you guys to write me at info at howbitchesaremade.com to share your stories, to ask for advice, to ask opinion, whatever you need to do. But um, ah, that's it. That's all I have to say to you guys. So I want to thank you all for listening. And, oh, that short that I referred to in this story. It will be available for you to see on both howbitchesaremade.com as well as on my IGTV. And you can find it there by following me on Instagram at the Rachel Melvin. And that's it. So remember, consistency is key. Stay bitchy, my friends. How Bitches Are Made is written and produced by Rachel Melvin.